from Colombo Ninja this is Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to Seasons Podcasts. I'm Aziz Durrani and today I'm joined by Phil Stedman, who's the Managing Director of Stedman Denny. Hi Phil. Hi there, how are you doing Aziz? I'm good, I'm good. We're actually here in Siem Reap in Cambodia. Um, we've come here to, to speak on a course on expected credit losses and provisioning, uh, being hosted by the National Bank of Cambodia. So we were very fortunate to have a tour of Angkor Wat and uh, after that, we've got straight into the course and, and been having a really good time meeting with uh, all the participants from across the region. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a blessed tour. It was amazing. I mean, one of the things that always uh, hit you in the face when you come to a region like this and you see that level of culture is at the time that Angkor Wat was being built, uh, the UK, right. around about 900, 1000 AD, was basically lived, going through the middle of the Dark Ages and living in a hole in the ground. Yeah, so. yeah, no, it's fascinating, the, the, the level of technology and skill. And, yeah. and of course, another bonus uh, of being out here is, is we're away from the UK where Boris Johnson's just become the new <laughs> Prime Minister. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll see how long Philip Hammond stays in the seat. Yeah, that'll be interesting. That's probably the biggest influence in terms of our... Our conversation today, which is banking and finance. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so Phil, um, why don't you uh, give us a quick introduction to yourself? You've had a very exciting career across the banking industry uh, and then at the regulator at the Bank of England, which is where, where we met, um, where we joined after the financial crisis. So how, how did it all start off? How did you get into banking? And, and I, I got into banking through languages. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm 54 years of age and people would join banking in those days the way you join the army. Okay. So you join the International Westminster Bank or you join Barclays International. And my first job on the very first day was being sent off to Belgium, almost like going off to join uh, an overseas division of the army. So <laughs> uh, I was sent off to Belgium because Stedman, the Belgians need to understand exactly how to run a British bank. Right. And you, and you, you, you were speaking French? I, I, I learned French yeah. at, at languages at university, so okay. I learned sp- French and Spanish. Perfect. So I did effectively like three tours of duty in Belgium for years, France for many years, and then I went off to Madrid. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And so, so uh, talk us through. So you, you joined... Um... So I joined, I joined NatWest on the, on the front office side, so doing sales and trading. Okay. Front office was very much a, reg- a relationship management role in those days, yeah. and it still is to some degree, but it was very much a understanding the products and understanding clients. Right. I'd say the technical aspect of knowing the risks in the project, in the products, and risks in the in the types of clients was not really a skill that was in the front office. It sat in the middle and the back office of, of credit at that time. And uh, when I went to Paris, they said, "Right, you're going to be in charge of of NatWest uh, Paris's credit function." Okay. And that was a big shock because suddenly I found myself having to. You actually had to understand. I had to understand the technical yeah. aspects of balance sheet management and and and, and risk management. And in the, in the front office, that was not really a skill that you knew that, that much or that well in those early years. So I had to, had to work really hard to get up to speed yeah. and understand what clients were up to. That, that actually taught me a lot about uh, some of the shortcuts that clients will do in, in order to get through the credit department or some of the issues that, that maybe the, you know, a credit department that understood his clients really well could look out for, and that still influenced me to this day. I would say. Right. Yeah. And I think I think you've in the in the couple of presentations you've given uh, during the last couple of days, you you brought out some of those techniques which uh, supervisors can also try and use yeah. in central banks to pick up. Yeah. Very much uh, so. I think some of those rules are almost like golden. They don't they don't change. Some of those shortcuts and some of those 
let's just call them you know wisdom around how numbers work and how companies can manipulate numbers they haven't changed the people yeah, are still do yeah. to this day so it's, it's all the basics are still there yeah. okay all right and then so um, and then after that you so you did that for a few years and then you moved on to and then I went and then I went on so I, I did that for a few years and then I went on to uh, Merrill Lynch uh, at the time the city of London was changing dramatically due to the rise of this thing called derivatives yeah and there was not really any skill base in what we now know is as investment banking or derivatives or structured product. Okay. So it was lifting out people from the banking community. Mm-hmm. So I was lifted out because I spoke languages. Yeah. And I was in charge of, of Merrill Lynch, um, Southern Europe at the time, okay. Middle East and Africa. Okay. Well. Uh, because I because I knew languages and I, I knew credit, uh, but principally what they were then teaching you was how to talk about. Um, talk about risk from a loan perspective and then switch that into a derivative perspective. Right. So Merrill Lynch taught me how to be a structured product risk analyst and a derivative analyst. And that's the skill I learned there for 11 years. I became the deputy head of credit. Uh-huh. And um, that skill didn't exist in other places. So Barclays asked me to join them. Okay. Effectively what they call to Merrill Lynch as their credit department. Uh-huh. Because those banks like now Western Barclays were entering the derivatives markets but didn't really, their credit functions didn't really understand how those risks performed. Yeah. And so you, they needed to train their credit function okay. in derivative product. And, and you were speaking uh, earlier today about the kind of the two, two models of credit where you have the, uh, you know, the credit officer goes out to, 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 to speak to the borrower and very much understands the deal and so on versus the, the, the style where you sit back and yeah, so assess everything. In, so. in Merrill Lynch, you would, join, you would join credit and you probably end up in the front office. A few times I was asked to join front office. Okay. And uh, I didn't do that, and I joined Barclays, and they had a very, they had a very different approach, whereby they didn't like their credit functions to really get too close to the clients. And I, I can understand both have their, their pros and cons, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the approach, which is quite distanced in Barclays, uh, meant that you, you sat back normally through a committee process, and you took a very, a very considered view of the risk you were taking. Yeah. Uh, rather than being knee-deep in the deal and, and trying to understand what the client wants, you actually sat back and, and thought about it more. Okay. I think they both have their benefits and they both have their weaknesses. Yeah, I think it's how they're managed at the institution and, and, and how strong the, the, the local team is and the governance process. So, yeah. Yeah, from my, my point of view, I think if any credit officers are listening or regulators that, you know, looking out for how things should, I think, be managed, I think there is a definite uh, benefit in having a, a relatively strong, aggressive credit function that doesn't allows it, does not allow itself to be pushed around by the front office. Yeah. And when I've seen it successful is when credit departments have gone into a crisis, as in they've gone into a recession, a global recession or a, uh-huh. uh, an economic uh-huh. recession. But they've gone in with their, with their commitments and their, and their red lines untouched. Yeah. So you'll often find the banks that were most damaged in the crisis, certainly in the UK-European crisis that I lived through, yeah. were the banks that probably in the good times were, were most compromised by some of the decisions that were made. And, and that affected them very badly, I think. Yeah. In the negative times, I, I definitely yeah, and, and I because I did a lot of work on uh, Royal Bank of Scotland uh, following its collapse and went in to do various reviews, and you could see there they had very good credit staff, but the but the actual credit culture was very weak, so they were constantly being overruled by the business, and mm-hmm. that, that's uh, you know often a problem you see. So okay, and then uh, at some point you then you then uh, how did you develop your emerging markets so uh, expertise? So in, in Barclays, which was a uh, didn't really have an emerging markets culture at that time. Ironically, Barclays in '99 had lost a billion dollars to 
on one transaction to a bank called Renaissance Capital. Right. So they fired everybody from the chairman right down to the poor little back office person that didn't make the margin call on the billion dollar repo trade. Oh, okay. So they had what they called a scorched earth policy to to emerging markets. They, they it, it nearly broke the bank. Right. And they, they were determined not to put themselves in those levels of operational risk. By the way, it's interesting, that transaction, that billion dollar loss, mm-hmm seen as a credit loss, but actually it's really it's an operational failing. Yeah. And it's interesting how many problems when they arise, when they bubble up to the surface of the bank, yep. get passed off as credit risk. But yeah, really yeah. it's an operational issue. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Barclays had a scorched earth policy and they had a chairman called Hans Jörg Brudlov who wanted to um, restart the um, restart the emerging markets franchise principally around the Central Eastern Europe and Russia world. Okay. And so he hired me in along with a bunch of front office people, and our job was to sit in a room for six months and write the strategy. That's another thing that is very different and unusual about that approach, was that you weren't allowed to actually start doing any business until everything was approved, everything was organized, all policies, frameworks, yeah. governance controls were in place. Uh-huh. It's often very, it's often, uh, when you go into a new market, it's often very thrilling, exciting to start the business mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to grab P&L, yeah. but actually that can be some of the so the Someone just makes a mistake. Yeah, and then further down the line, they yeah. start going wrong. So, yeah. so Barclays made sure that there was a, a very structured, organized approach to how they reopened in emerging markets. Okay. Once they once they had all that approved at the board level, yeah, there was risk appetite statements were all clearly set out. Mm-hmm. There was no way that the chairman and the board and the management and the exec committee were out of line. It was all very clear, right, right down to what my day job would be and how I could influence the balance sheet of the bank. Okay. Then you were kind of off at the races. You were, you felt that you were never second-guessing what the strategy of the bank was. Yeah, okay. it was very clear. So that, I think that worked well. It's, it's a slower process, but it works yeah. really well. Yeah, it's a more longer-term approach, right? So And so that, that, that went on, and so we completely changed the bank's approach to emerging markets. Again, turned it into a trading business away from a lending business. And um, as often happens, the, the bubble got very, very frothy, so mm-hmm. 2006, 2007, uh, Renaissance Capital decided to create the, the largest bank in Africa. Yeah. And so they, they just went around the world hiring the people that they needed. And okay. they wanted to take on the business that I was managing. I joined at that time the front office of Barclays, which was an unusual thing. Right. But the, the head of the front office, mm-hmm. basically the, the, the global head of sales, asked me to join yeah. and run the, um, the, the, the effectively the selling of the risk products to investors. So if you have an understanding of... of um, credit risk and your understanding of risk in product, yep. you're then able to sit in front of an investor and say, would you like to buy these bonds? These are inherently the risks that you're facing. Sure. And yeah. the investors like that because they normally would see a salesperson who would say, please buy my bonds. Yeah, yeah. And they were saying, well, what, you what can does Phil think? Yeah, you can get into the underlying characteristics and risk. And so I, I was, I was a, a, a director in the structuring department, okay. which would be selling structured products. Right. Okay. That went out to Renaissance Capital. Uh, and a lot of people joined Renaissance at the time, but uh-huh. it was just at the time of the crisis, 2007. So that all hit then. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 overnight, it, it was like the phone was never was never stopped ringing. Then suddenly the phone never rang. <laughs> okay. And you couldn't sell anything. Right. Okay. Uh, and uh, Hans Jörg Rulof said, "Please come back to Barclays," and I said, "No." And he was very he was a visionary actually because he was like he's he's still amazing to this day, 75 years of age, still you know changing the face of banking as we speak, and he was like. The world's going to end, and out of that will come some harsh lessons for the banks in the UK. Yeah. And basically, what he meant was, in good times, people do lots of things 
that they think they'll get away with. Yeah. I mean, the obvious ones are, you know, all the Ponzi schemes that you saw. Yeah. yeah. So there were lots and lots of transactions that were poorly documented or clients misunderstood. Uh-huh. And then it all starts to unwind once. It all, the, it all starts yeah. to unwind. Lots of litigation against the banks. Lots yeah. of litigation against the banks that he was the chairman of. Okay. And he wanted to have a, an independent voice that would tell him, you know, was this sold properly? Was this understood properly by the client? Yeah. Uh, as you can imagine, it was a f- it was a feeding frenzy for lawyers and consultants. Yeah, but yeah. that's that was the world I stepped into in Moscow. Okay. Uh, an example of a transaction that I think you know from a from a regulatory point of view is that um, we'd see things like a bank would be sold a loan, but the loan would actually be a swap based on a, a currency FX rate, based on an option, hmm. and suddenly the the bank would thought they had a loan, but actually they had a derivative, and suddenly they were getting called for collateral, which they didn't even know they had to. Yeah, yeah. Things like and, that were and happening, then, and then no one knew where's yeah. the underlying risk and what do you actually have and not. So, so okay. yeah, and that that was that was the, the the negative of the time in 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 Russia that 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 world yeah. badly affected Russia. You know, there's, there's a lot of mis-selling and a lot of structured product that was too complicated for its own good okay, okay. and the, the Russian banks were affected badly by all that so yeah. I was in the middle of all of that so you, you, you okay so you, you went through all that yeah. and then and then at some point you decided to so he, he set up Stepman Denny that was his idea okay and he said uh, this will be the, the, the platform which we investigate or we get asked to investigate some of these issues and that's what okay. we did in Russia yeah. and then the same thing started happening in Africa, mm-hmm. and I was very close to a chap called Lamido Sunusi, who was the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria. Yeah, and he asked me to do something quite similar in Nigeria. He was going to nationalise half the banking system overnight. Yeah, and that meant that he was going to put half the bankers in prison, which he did. Mm-hmm. And the bankers he didn't put in prison, wow. he put into the bad, he put into the bad banks. Okay, but they needed resources, they needed training, they needed yeah. frameworks, governance, controls, all that stuff. They needed written pretty quickly because okay. they're running bad banks. Yeah. So you, uh, so you so took over that project. Took over yeah. that project in Nigeria. Okay, and so and so now Stedman Denny. It's been around for what 12, 12 years, right? Two thousand and seven. Yeah, twelve years. Okay. Doing principally um, that kind of work. I always get called in when there are problems. Uh-huh. Normally on bank issues. So normally it's a it's a governor of a central bank that picks up the phone to me. Yeah. To say, uh, I think I have some issues. Can you come and help us? Or it's a bank that doesn't know it has issues. Or it's a bank that wants to raise capital, but when they speak to investors, they get told, you know, what, what do you really yeah. look like? I think the big problem you're going to face in this region uh, is when capital markets start to arrive, you will have to start explaining to investors what you really have. And yeah. they, they look to two places for that. They look to the bank and they look to the regulator. Yeah, and of course, there's a, there's a big fear here of... Can you trust the data? You know, what are the financials yeah. really like? We need someone to get under there and, and really show it to us. So, okay, so, so you were doing that. Then um, how did you then end up at the, the Financial Services Authority? Uh, um, the, the head of, the head of uh, Barclays, um, the, the head of Barclays uh, credit, had been seconded into the, to the, to the FCA, the PRA, as yeah. before it was. Yeah. And uh, he had to build out a team okay. uh, of, of technical experts that, that knew banking. Yeah. And uh, they were reaching out to people like myself, people in, in their own consulting firms or yeah. separate. Uh-huh. And they said, would you, would you come and join? I said, not as, a, not as an employee. So we mm. came to an, an agreement whereby yeah. I recused myself from Stebman Denny and I went to work for the Bank of England. Okay, yeah. And that was, that was around the same time I joined as well. And in similar circumstances after the crisis, they were looking for people who had some banking knowledge and expertise 
to come in and, and, and lend that hand. So I think that was a that was a you know a pretty good time. We went through the after effects of the crisis, helped develop the stress testing regime, um, went through a few other emergencies as as things came out of the woodwork. Um, and then, of course, the FSA itself was merged into the Bank of England, so that, mm -hmm. that was another big uh, regulatory change. Um, what, so, what do you what do you think? I mean, uh, one of the big issues we we are we have in this region is how do you um, you know you build up that kind of knowledge base of people and and so on. And a lot of the regulators here, we're talking right now about IFRS nine, for example. Uh, but also implementing risk-based supervision. Uh, how do you kind of have attract that knowledge into the central bank and and, and build it up? Um, well, uh, ironically, I was having dinner with the with the deputy governor yesterday, and uh, he, the, he said the deputy governor of the national bank of the of national bank of Cambodia. Yeah. and he was saying to me, "It's a that's his number one concern." I asked him what keeps him awake at night, and he's like, yeah. "Hiring and hiring and not losing staff." And whilst whilst they're here. You know, trading them so even if they leave, they add value to the banking system. Right. Yeah. And um, so one of the things that I I, I think I have seen in the region is uh, first of all the pool of talent that's sitting around me, which which are representing I think as much many as fifteen central banks that are in the room today that we're yeah talking it about. was it was about that yeah. So uh, there's a, an amazing cross section of the caliber of people. So the the caliber of the people is very strong but they are clearly going to suffer slightly by the fact that they have lived through less crises than a European US-centric regulatory body. Right, yeah. Because one of the dilemmas that you face in this region is that it's kind of dodged many of the bullets that... That's right. And I was trying to bring that out when we were starting the introduction on IFRS 9, yeah. is to kind of give the background to the financial crisis. Because, of course, as you're saying, they didn't live through that, so they don't really understand why these numerous regulations have suddenly come through because yeah. they were doing things fine as it were so I think that's definitely a big challenge so one, one of the things I, I, I worry a little about that I've heard over the last few days is um, is the, the level of new regulation that's coming out mm -hmm. uh, and this first wave and mostly around IFRS 9 is that it's such a it's such a level of education to get you get through yeah. is that they will have to um, do two things, learn this new level of education at the same time do business as usual work to, to, to get to know the banking community very well to get to know some of the issues we've raised in terms of shortcuts and, and failings yeah. at the same time be educated mm -hmm. and one of the one of the one of the balances that you have to face and we saw this in the PRA is that you, if you're hiring lots of very experienced people yeah. they, they're great on giving you that understanding of where things could go wrong right. but they may not be that technically proficient and you have a balance so you have people that are very technically strong yeah. and with in certain in terms of policy and in terms of process mm -hmm. but they they may not have they may not see some of the yeah they might not have worked in the bank and yeah. really understood how things work so keeping that balance is, is I think is important and we're, I think that's one of the issues that uh, the deputy governor of the National Bank of Cambodia focused on is that he has to train a large body of people yeah. pretty quickly yeah. to a high technical standard Effectively against the headwind of new regulation, right? Which has probably never been as strong as it is now. Yeah, and 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 I think you know one of the other things. Many of the central banks in this region, it's they they kind of they hire people from from graduation or they sponsor them for their masters, and then you're expected to stay there for your whole career. And if you decide to leave the central bank, uh, you you can never come back. Uh, so it's it's quite strict, really? right? 
uh, and generally they don't take that many participants. Mm. Now I think from from the external market, I think that's starting to change. Now we're seeing more uh, recruitment of, of former bankers coming mm. in mm-hmm. uh, and a bit more. But I think that it would help to kind of uh, you know make it a bit more flexible. So yes, you can leave, but if you want to come back after a few years, or let's try and hire some more experienced people. And, and mix up the skill base. Yeah, I think from a cultural point of view, you have to make it such that um, for a banker coming to the central bank is a is a badge of honor. Yeah. So it's not a place that you go and, and live the sunset of your career. It's a place that you almost like going get retooled, reeducated. Mm-hmm. I very, I very strongly feel that you should come to the central bank proud to do the work. I mean, yeah. this work makes a massive difference to people's lives. I always, I always give the same story, saying you know. How many people's lives were affected by the UK European banking recession? It was, it cost you know it cost the UK banks eight hundred and fifty billion dollars. Yeah, and many people lost their jobs, and hospitals had to close, and right. schools had to close to pay for all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And people just took that austerity on. They said, you know, this is the cost of mm. of what happened. But um, so it's important that people see that good regulation, in effect, saves lives. Yeah. To me, it's it's that. I know that sounds a little bit strange, it's, but it's true. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a new motto that uh, we could consider. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. and um, so that, that's, that's the one thing is that people shouldn't come here thinking it's, um, it's a place that they'll, they'll pass through on the way back to. You should come here thinking you're going to make a massive difference to yourself and yeah. you can make a massive difference to your community. Yeah, okay, good, good. Um, and then let's so, so let's go back. You've obviously you you had that emerging markets experience at Renaissance, and then also with Stedman Denny across uh, many countries in Africa. Um, how 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 do you kind of transfer that knowledge uh, out to say the the CSIN membership and uh, the region across Asia um, when we're talking about they're going out to look at the loan portfolios of their banks. Uh, what are the kind of things they really need to understand about the characteristics of, of okay. the loan books and the lending and what are well, the, some of the big risk issues? So before we get into some of those big risk issues, I, I'd just like yeah. to say that um, my, my job now is principally raising capital for emerging markets banks. So I'm, okay. I'm like at the vanguard of those conversations with investors. Right. And most investors, they're very articulate in why they're reticent about investing in, in banks of this region. Mm-hmm or sectors such as microfinance or such as uh, car leasing books. Yeah. And principally it's all about data. It's all about the, the paucity of transparent data. Okay. So one of the things that I want to, to underscore is that uh, one, of the, one of the virtuous circles that the regulators have to build with the banks right. is um, good regulation and r- robust, uh, you know, robust auditors and therefore robust you know, product control and robust financial control in the banks allows investors to say, well, I think what we're hearing as a story kind of makes sense. Yeah. If there's any hint that that's not working out, then investors generally will come to a banking sector saying, yeah. I just don't believe the away. numbers, I'm going yeah. to walk away. Yeah. Or they'll, they'll, they'll enter their toe into the market at a, at a cost that is, ab- absor- you know. For example, if you look in Africa now, the Nigeria, Ghana... You know, five-year bank lending rate is about nine percent. The ta- the Zambia bank lending rate is about fifteen to twenty-five percent okay. in dollars. Yeah. And the yeah. difference wow. is, one market has a story that nobody believes, and the other market has a story that is improving. Mm. Yeah. And that, and you could say, well, geographically and economically, that they're quite, they're quite similar. Right. But that is that is all due to 
banking system and banking system transparency and governance. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, one of the big issues we have got is is around data, data quality. Uh, a lot of the supervisors that we've been talking to over the last few days uh, on this course have been saying, well, we, we just can't trust the bank's data that's coming through. We don't know what it's, you know, how reliable it is. Uh, and of course, with IFRS 9 now, you need all that data and you need to be able to believe it. Otherwise, the models are going to be useless themselves. So it's certainly a big, big issue. So, so some, of the, some of the themes that I think are, are you know, uh, that work in, in, in Africa, which is where I spend most of my career and, and work in this region, I never forget, I was the regulator for international banks in the Bank of England, so I, I focused, even though it's in the UK central bank, I focused on the international side. Right, okay. And, and I covered all the Asian banks that are based in London. So okay. I had a, a really good briefing on how things are different here. Yeah. And one, one of the things I think is, is key to understanding of the market is that the dynamic, the macroeconomic dynamics are very, very different. Mm-hmm. So, um, it. You know, examine being a bank regulator in this region is tough because the car is going three times faster, and you're still trying to jump on and understand it. So, UK banking sector grows at two, three percent a year. Yeah. Here, the banking growth could be very substantial. Exactly. We've got yeah. new bank entries that are coming in all the time in, in, with product types that they may have borrowed some of the product structures from UK, European, US, but they're being implemented in a different way. Yeah. So sometimes not understood properly. Totally. Uh, yeah. And rushed through the process. So, uh, so getting to understand what a bank looks like in 2019 in Asia is just so much harder because of um, the growth, even if numbers are transparent, they're changing so fast, is that it's hard to grab and say, that actually is where the bank is today. The yeah. example I always give is that if you, if you open a bank balance sheet and you look at its non-performing loans and its provisioning ratios, you're looking at a, you're looking at a book that actually took two years, three years, four years to get there. Right. So... But that, that, that bank is in a different place now, today. Yeah, yeah, You're looking at a story that's very old. Yeah. And uh, I, I think and at the same time, so you have this, this big challenge for supervisors, and then you've also got the kind of fourth industrial revolution, the fintech or the tech fins now coming in, um, moving into the traditional banking market. Um, so it may be you know, new apps that you, you can borrow through or digital wallets that are uh, Yeah, it, it's meaning also that the that the regulatory framework, like say for example, one of the countries that we, we talked a lot with the regulators here is Nepal, mm-hmm. they're probably as at the cutting edge in certain aspects of fintech, regulation around fintech and promotion of those products right. than France. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Because so, it's it's, here is where it'll make, you know, yeah. it'll make a big difference. And um, yeah, so, so and one, of the, one of the main concerns of the regulators in these regions will be Issues that can only be solved by great technology, such as fraud, uh, such as transparency of data, uh, such as the KYC process. I yeah. mean, in Africa, um, if you speak to the central bank uh, governor of Ghana, mm-hmm. he says, "My main concern is cyber fraud. His main concern is nothing, is nothing more issue than just people stealing money through, yeah, through improper KYC." Yeah. Yeah. If you talk to a UK bank, is KYC the top of your concerns? They go, no, the forms we fill in, they're really easy. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a very, very different uh, mindset, right? And yeah. actually, that's that's a, the, the the challenge of KYC and AML and all that verification is certainly a, a big problem in this region. And you mentioned earlier about kind of microfinance lending and you know verifying where the money goes and so on. And again, that those are big challenges now. 
You, you're also the, the CEO of Snucode, which I think uh, is, has a kind of unique technology, um, which, yeah. which is applicable actually across a wide variety of areas. But why don't you talk us through what, what is Snucode and how... So, so Snucode is, a, um, is, a, is a, a mapping process and a verification and a location process that was built on the back of technology that I would say was had its origins in, in, in military technology, right. which is basically trying to find assets in environments whereby it was hard to find assets. Okay. So in this case, it was hard to find assets because there was no internet. Yeah. So you imagine the world whereby there's no 3G, 4G, mm-hmm. and things are moving around and you're trying to track them. Yeah. So um, the, the, the application was built uh, in West Africa using West Africa technicians and engineers. Okay. But the, but the founder is, uh, was trained at uh, Jaguar Land Rover and worked in US military and then went to work for MI5 and went to work for the police. So okay. he comes from that whole tradition of, of kind of secretive military tracking software. Okay. okay. And a lot of that was built into Snucode right. such that it allows... Um, Snucode is a... Is a, is a an, an application that runs on Android or, or iOS okay. is built into cars, built into motorbikes. Um, so the, the clients that normally we service are either uh, e-commerce platforms that want to deliver goods to a place that they don't know where to deliver to. I mean, the, la- the last mile in Africa is the biggest issue. Yeah. Delivering something to an address where you don't have an address. Well, you don't have a postcode. You don't have a postcode. Yeah. Yeah. So, so 54 countries in Africa have come together and said, well, we're not going to try and do roads and issue postcodes. We're going to issue geocodes. Okay. So there's been a, uh, a group of companies that have tried to build geocodes to allow you to, to, to deliver to that last mile. Mm-hmm. And that also allows you to find where things are. Right. Now, Snucode is, is built as an offline platform, so it works just using GPS. Right, so you don't need internet. Don't need internet. Uh, and what it allows you to do is track things like people, borrowers, lenders, documentation. It's very, very important for microfinance. So microfinance has a big problem in yeah. fraud, yeah. whereby the borrower is, is often not in the place they say they are. Okay, so, so, so how does it work? Is it based on your mobile based SIM? Based on your mobile phone, okay. without a SIM. Without a SIM. Without a SIM. So based right. on your mobile phone, or a device that you decide you want to use. It could be your car or your... So, for example, uh, the the, uh, the Ivory Coast government are building handheld Android devices okay. that they that are owned by the Ivory Coast government that go around and track the perimeters of a farm, and they use that for tax reform. Okay. Because often when you go see a farmer, you say, "How big is your farm?" He goes, oh, "It's very, very small." So this is a satellite technology then. Satellite so there's technology. A, there's a receiver in the, yeah, in, the device. in the device. Yeah. Okay. Right. But in terms of in terms of KYC and getting back to banking, yeah. what it allows you to do is understand where the, the giver of the money is and the receiver of the money is. Uh-huh. And often that's where the fraud exists, whereby in microfinance land, okay. uh, you're not often not walking into a very large branch and, and doing it all in a normal sense. You're doing it often at other company homes. You're trying to verify where people live, where they yeah. work, where they are, where yeah. they're collecting the money. Uh-huh. So, so this gives you a unique way of actually tracking that tracking, and making sure yeah. the money is going yeah. to where, where you think it is. Yeah. Okay, so that sounds uh, pretty revolutionary. As, as I said, in Ghana, the average NPO rate in microfinance is 25% all due to fraud. Right. So it gives you an idea of the of the, the amount of savings you can make just if you started to tackle this issue of cyber. Yeah. And therefore that's why if you go and look at uh, the private equity market and you and you look at where most investments are going mm-hmm. in fintech it's mostly going into KYC and uh, and cyber technology. And and has so where is Snucode being used then? Um, so Snucode at the moment is being used uh, for ambulance police tracking around West Africa. Okay. So the ambulance services use it to find people. Right. Um, 
and it, it's been used in, in, in the medical services in India, again, okay. to track people, to track nurses, to track doctors. Right. When you get a 911 call in, in the Himalayas, you can't find the person. Yeah. But there's people that have their snoot code, so you know where to go to, irrespective of where they are. Okay. So it's, it sounds like a unique kind of, it's one of those technologies that developed for one reason, and then you suddenly realize, well, actually, I can apply it to a whole host of other things. But more importantly, it's, yeah. it's the, it's, it doesn't have to come out of an Amazon, Google type of incubator. It, can, yeah. it comes out of clever people in emerging markets and that's why I think the people that best understand the solutions to their own problems are mm. often mm. in the country they're in so I, I think you'll find out of age will come many solutions yeah. for some of these issues that we're talking about in today which are you know so technology will find a solution right. that maybe a UK European US technology firm may not think about yeah no I think you're right and we're certainly seeing the kind of the uptake of fintech and, and all these new apps and products that is coming out, really it's in Asia that they're being developed, uh, tested and, and really used because there's a big need and often a missing kind of link. So uh, I think yeah. you're definitely right about that. Okay, Phil, I mean, that's that's really interesting. Is there any kind of other additional final thoughts that you want to share on, uh, um, you know, what, what, what our regulators and central bankers in this region really need to focus on? Uh, in the lending market, and also maybe any any thoughts and worries about the next year or two. What do you th what do you see coming around the horizon that that could so so? Um, I, I think the worry is uh, for this region will be uh, interest rates. Right. So we've lived in ten years of of near you know zero interest rates. Yeah. So you've not really been pricing for credit. Yeah. And 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 as a result. Uh, I think this market and Africa to, to some degree but, but this market will will not be able to react well to a significant rise in, in, in US dollar interest rates or US bond rates, fixed income rates in general. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not a deep there's not a deep equity market to to go to as an alternative. Sure. Yeah. So um, so that's my only concern is that if if we've been living in this region with ten years of effectively free money mm -hmm. Uh, how will some of the weaker credits, some of the weaker sectors, some of the smaller sectors that have less in terms of the less robust, able to take shocks yeah. in some of the countries? So my worry would be that some of the second, third tier economies, right. some of the smaller sectors, Suddenly, will just struggle yeah. to 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 re to to make that make that shift as yep. we go into yep. higher interest rates. But I thought they'd be. I thought that was going to happen two years ago, and every year it's wrong, I'm wrong, right? We're still, we're still, yeah, going through it. And I think also particularly in this region, we have a lot of conglomerates that are operating across different industries and also across different countries. So, uh, you know, one of those third sector countries that may not be that big could suddenly blow up and, uh, you know, really take out a, a massive company, which could then affect a banking group in a, mm -hmm. in a much bigger economy. So I think uh, there's a lot of interrelations there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and particularly with the trade war and, and all this kind of stuff. The well, geopolitical but, trade yeah. war is, is the second thing that everybody... Yeah. I'd say that is there in the interest rate. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of big deal, but not fully in. Mm -hmm. And um, you just feel when, you, when you're in this region that you're in, you know, still the centre of all things trade. Yeah. As in, this is what people get out of bed to do. They get out of bed to buy and sell and, and, to, and, to, and to be mercantile in their life. Yeah. And, and as a result, if that becomes harder... They'll feel it, you know. You don't. You don't feel when you're in the UK that you're dealing with a nation of shopkeepers, even though you possibly really are. Yeah. So yeah. people don't really get too bothered about the FX rate, right. Or the exchange rate. Although it's been falling as well, pounds. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, yeah. but people, it's a second order effect. People still feel they can go to work and have a job and do right. the normal stuff. But in this region, 
You, you think, feel it very severely. Very quickly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see people tracking the rates all the time, so they're very mm -hmm. well aware of that. Okay, Phil, it's been it's been great chatting to you. Thank you. Uh, I wish you the very best uh, of luck in your in your future endeavors and career, and uh, hopefully get the, get a chance to see you out here in Asia again. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, what an amazing place. Thank you so great. much for your time. Okay, thanks Bye. a lot. Cheers. Bye.